I just finished and someone handed me a towel and I put it over my head and I just sat there really calm, but just really just thought I gave it everything. I did my best. It didn't work out. That's okay. And then the team manager came along and ripped the towel off my head and shouted gold. <laughs> it's like, what? Welcome to the XO Conversations Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Rishma Walji. On this podcast, we talk about growth, the science, the struggles, motivations, and challenges. In an effort to inspire us to grow and live our own extraordinary lives. I've been doing a lot of research developing strategies to help people make more intentional decisions in life. If you're interested, you can take my free quiz and get more information on the website livingxo.com. Today, it's fitting and incredibly inspirational to be able to talk to Karen Dark. She's the ultimate adventurer. She cycled across the Himalayas from Kazakhstan to Pakistan, through the Indian Himalayas, and across the Tibetan Plateau. In 2002, she was part of a team sea kayaking from Canada to Alaska. She took part in a ski expedition that crossed 372 miles across Greenland's ice cap. She's also climbed Mont Blanc, Matterhorn, and El Capitan, and she cycled, skied, and kayaked the length of Japan. She's won multiple medals, including an Olympic gold medal in Rio. Even though she is a force and she could be incredibly intimidating, she is actually such a grounded and encouraging person. I had the pleasure of talking to her multiple times, and she was kind enough to share her story with me. If you're thinking, wow, she's amazing, you're not alone. (laughs) I'm thinking it too. And if you're feeling like you're comparing yourself to her or thinking, oh, I could never do that, you need to listen to this episode. She talks a lot about where she started and how she did it and how it doesn't have to be impossible. And trust me, you are going to feel incredibly inspired. Now, I'm an adventurous person. I've traveled a lot. I've taught in remote areas of the Hunza Valley. I've climbed mountains, albeit smaller ones. I've skydived and gone canyoning. And people often ask me, why? (laughs) Why do you do these things? And funny that I don't consider myself a very sporty person per se. And I'm certainly not a high performance athlete by any means. But I know for me, I love pushing myself, experiencing that adrenaline, and being absolutely terrified, but also that later feeling of accomplishment. So I asked Karen, why does she do it? You've probably come across the idea of rocks and sand. You know, the rocks being things that you really feel more, like you value more, or they they feel more important somehow. And the sand just being the stuff that can fill every day from emails to cleaning to just life survival stuff. Um, I think I just get really down if all I can see is a sort of survival mode of just chugging through doing life admin. It's like, that's not really enough. So I like having some rocks to think about and keep me excited and I'm trying to make a little bit of time, not maybe not every day, but you know, on a regular basis to to look at how to make these things move forward or help them move forward. Which is hard to do, right? We can easily get caught up in life momentum and neglect those big rocks that are important to us, or in Karen's case, might even define her to some extent. When we get caught up in that life momentum, and there's nothing wrong with it, and maybe for some people that's absolutely 
they're really okay with that. It's just that um, I kind of feel like if if I don't have something else, then it feels like there's a bit of meaning or a bit of excitement or a bit of purpose that's missing somehow. So I like to bring in different things. I call, I call it having wibbers. A wib, it's just a made-up word, but a wibber stands for a wouldn't it be amazing. Wibba. Wouldn't it be amazing. This is Karen's life philosophy, and I think I can see myself adopting that already. Instead of thinking what's not possible, instead of holding ourselves back with all the what-ifs or shoulds, we can actually dare to dream. Wouldn't it be amazing? I asked Karen how she got the idea to compete. Was she an athlete, a racer? She said no. She was going through a difficult time, and she was watching the Olympics in Beijing. And just suddenly got this idea because the next one was in London. Maybe it was one of those wibbers. Wouldn't it be amazing to compete in a games in my own country? But it instantly dismissed it as crazy. Um, I think I'd done one or two races at that point and come last in them. And then I said, no, it wouldn't go away. And I just, start, I just started trying. And it was really intimidating. I didn't know if I could do it. Part of me was overconfident at first because I thought, well, I ride my bike every day. I'm sure I'll be quite fit. And then when I went and did my first race, I realized that I was absolutely useless at racing and all these women just lapping me. And I was kind of, my, my ego was knocked a little bit because I just somehow thought I was strong. Um, and then I was like, okay, well, how do you get to be good? And then I started learning about performance science and sports science and got a coach who offered to help me. And yeah, things just went from there. And it was a process of just going deep on how do you how do you train your body and your mind to get to perform? So for me, I, I guess I was just always interested in the learning process of all of it. And when I originally planned to go to London, I didn't know if I could get there. And I definitely never planned on going another, well, in total, my career was probably about 13 years. So didn't really anticipate it would last that long. <laughs> Sometimes when you see people doing something incredible, you think it came easily. I mean, you know, it must have been hard work, taken discipline and drive and effort, but we can all fall into this comparison trap thinking it was easy for them, but it wasn't easy for Karen. I mean, it's not easy for anyone. I started training properly in 2008 when I got the idea. And then, yeah, I did some races in 2009 and was still last. And then finally in 2010, started to see a bit of progress and then got to London in 2012, won a silver and then went really deep on how, how is it possible to win a gold medal? I don't know, because I never, I never really won races. It wasn't like I was super strong compared to other people. It was always a struggle to be there. Um, called it Project Gold for Rio and it, it worked out incredibly. And then I carried on training for, for Tokyo, which was another four years. Um, but then it was delayed for a year for COVID and I got ill and had to have surgery a few months before it. So it didn't work out. So yeah. It took years. It took so much commitment and dedication like anything it's quite hard to pull something off unless you really commit to it so it was consistent commitment I mean I it was barely a day that I wouldn't wouldn't follow the plan some days the plan is to rest I never rested enough my, my coach used to get quite frustrated with me that I would overdo everything that's maybe a symptom of my personality 
so I have to manage it sometimes. And actually, interestingly, recently I've I've not been riding as much, and I really intentionally this summer decided to try and break what's become, you know, a habit. Many habits are good for us, but if I think if they start to become verging on unhealthy or addictive, then even if they're healthy, like going cycling, they're not really that healthy in the bigger picture. And I decided I really needed to try and break it a little bit. So I had at least five weeks where I didn't ride my bike this year or barely rode it. And now I'm riding again. And actually, I'm surprised how good I feel. Now I'm thinking I should have actually taken more rest in all those years that I was training. basically hammered myself for 13 years. This is the awareness. Even something good can be something you need to change. It felt like I'd reached a point where I wasn't maybe really learning and growing anymore. It was kind of like I felt a bit stuck in a rut and I was just doing the same old, same old. And even though it was, you know, on paper, it's good for you to be really fit and healthy. I felt like other areas of my life were being really limited because I, you know, I literally, I would get anxious if there was going to be even more than one or two days when I wouldn't be able to ride. I'd be figuring out how can I make that happen because that's not okay. And it just felt like the balance had gone out a little bit. Going for the Olympics is just one of her adventures. She's traveled all over the world. And interestingly, she often goes with people who are joining her for the first time. Traveling for the first time, cycling for the first time, doing amazing things that they never themselves thought possible. I'd really missed adventure because I'd had to kind of give it up for quite a long time to focus on the racing season and the calendar and performance. And if you go off cycling in foreign countries for months on end, it's not very good for performance. So I really decided I needed to reinstate some of that. And the main reason is just that experience of culture and nature in other places and what that brings. So actually, I planned a trip with some teammates and we planned it as our post-Rio recovery ride and it was to follow a route called the Carretera Austral which is an old dirt road or it, it, I think it isn't now I think they've since tarmacked it but when we did it it was largely dirt and gravel all the way down through Patagonia in Chile it was incredible and in the process a shoulder injury that I was waiting for surgery on resolved itself so when I got back I cancelled the surgery and honestly I attribute a lot of that to just that discharge in nature and letting go of stress and tension and pressure and just allowing the body that space and time to heal in a beautiful place. I've taken journeys across all of the continents apart from Antarctica and they've all been with different people. So it's been very organic in how it evolved. I didn't really plan. Largely there were people who'd never done anything like that before. Maybe they'd never ridden a bike since they were a kid or ever. Maybe they didn't believe they had it in them to cycle to or to camp like people had never camped before and all the journeys were very simple like following waterways rivers or coastlines and camping on the whole and just yeah living quite simply close to nature i feel like i've been there in a way i love these types of adrenaline rush activities that push me in ways that i didn't think were possible There's something really transformational about the entire experience, not only doing it, but also planning and testing yourself, pushing yourself to your limits. I can imagine how it must feel for not only her, but also for the people who are going with her, sometimes doing these activities for the very first time. 
Well, I mean, I suppose I've realised that I've done stuff like this for so long that my normal or what I think is not too difficult is a bit different for other people. For example, the, one of the trips following the River Ganges from its source in northern India down to its sort of spiritual heart in Varanasi. One of the friends that came with me, or it was two friends that came, um, they're a couple, and my friend Christine had never cycled since she was about five years old. And when she began training for it about a year before, she couldn't even get up the hill to the local supermarket that was like a few hundred meters. So then a year or so later, she's doing sort of 80 kilometers across the Himalayas. And I mean, it's the other thing is it's really amazing for me to experience it through her eyes as well. She'd never been into another culture like that, never done anything like that physically. But I think we're all capable of doing these things if we've got even a little bit of desire to. Um, and how it can change our lives and transform things is pretty cool. <laughs> For Karen, it's clear that having adventures are part of her fabric. It's important to her. Now ask yourself, what's important to you? It doesn't have to be such a big thing like climbing a mountain or competing in the Olympics. Do you want to work towards a career goal? Is there a relationship that you want to deepen? Are you trying to maintain or improve your fitness? Just think for a moment about something you're striving for in your own life. Generally, when we're looking to reach our goals, people talk about two factors, skill and motivation. Learning how to do something, let's say exercise, race, ride a bike, requires learning how to do it building your skill or physical capacity or ability to achieve that goal. The second piece is motivation. You have to be sufficiently motivated to do the activity. So when we're looking at achieving the goal, most people focus on staying motivated and learning how to do it, all of which make absolute sense. If you're motivated to take the action, you can keep trying until you learn enough or become capable enough until eventually you reach the goal. But sometimes there's a disconnect between these two things. It's hard enough to figure out your goal, what it is, and if this is the right goal for you, which I talk about in my work and the book I'm writing, but I'll leave that concept for another day and focus today more so on action. Is this the right action that will take you to your goal? In the case of exercise, we know that we need to build capacity, and for more people, that's physical capacity. We need to practice each day, ride for this much distance, ride this many times a week, build your strength, etc. And people who do this regularly are taking action. But for people who take action and if they're also self-aware, the potential skyrockets. Because inevitably, there are other actions that are needed to help you stay motivated, to feel capable when things go wrong, to eliminate doubts, to recover when your muscles need a break. These are all performance habits that link back to knowing yourself, your body, your mind, your limiting beliefs, what's holding you back, and what you're afraid of. If you want more information on habits, you can check out an earlier episode that I did on building habits. But for now, let's just talk about the fact that if you can be aware not only of your goal, but also what it takes to achieve it, what holds you back, what creates doubt, then the actions you take can be tailored to those things too. And it'll make it more likely to reach your goals. 
People who take action with this awareness in mind of not just the physical aspects, but all of it. I like to call these people drivers. They're taking control of their life. They're driving what happens in their life. They're taking meaningful action rather than just spinning their wheels and not getting as far as they would like. Karen talked a lot about her physical training, but she also stressed the importance of her mental training. It's really easy just to think that everything needs to change from the outside, but more and more I realize that what if we work on ourselves from the inside, then it can really have a big impact on what's happening around us and for us. And then all of that, all of those mental processes, the power of our mind is so immense. And just to work on reframing everything and just simply thinking about what is working, f- that things are working for us instead of against us. And then when we have like intentions and goals to, I think there's different levels for me. One of them you might call more of a sort of inner work, slightly more spiritual approach. And then the other would just be a really practical planning, taking action. Um, yeah, making things, moving, that consistent commitment of doing things little by little every day. I mean, I suppose the biggest one that I just come back to all the time is, and I have to work on all the time, is just that reminder that we are not our thoughts and we can change them to make them work for us. Our thoughts influence our, our neurochemistry, our biochemistry, our physiology, and that influences how we feel and therefore what action we take in the world. So whenever I get down or feel a bit like I'm going that way, and now I'm like, okay, what am I doing with my head? What am I doing with my thoughts? What am I doing with my actions every day? What am I not doing? And just start to really hone things up a little bit so that um making my body work optimally. How many times have you dreamt about something? How many times have you dreamt about doing something and then actually done it? It's a hard thing to do. How do we actually follow our dreams and take action, not just action, but relevant action, productive action, action that will move us towards accomplishing something that we really want? And on top of that, how do we take action when things are difficult? We have responsibilities, obligations, families to take care of. We have busy jobs and schedules. Maybe we have to overcome fear, or maybe we've never done something like this before. If you're not yet feeling inspired by Karen, I can't imagine why not, because she's awesome. But let me tell you something else that's incredible about her and her journey. She has faced adversity like I could never imagine. So when I was 21, I liked rock climbing and fell off a cliff in Scotland when I was being a little bit too cocky, thinking I could climb a cliff that was too steep for me. Maybe a bit too much ego going on and uh, should have come down sooner. Fell about 10 metres and broke my back on the, on, the, on the rocks below. I was on sea cliffs in, just there in the north of Scotland. So I woke up three days later, I think I was unconscious for, and to be told I was paralysed from the chest down. It happened so long ago that she says it casually, but in case you missed it, in case you're driving or walking or cleaning while you listen, let me say it again. She was climbing and fell off a cliff. She broke her back and is now paralyzed from the chest down. Everything she's done, at least what we've talked about in this episode, winning medals, traveling, adventuring, All of that she has done since the accident. To be 
I mean, to be honest, I was in intensive care. I was full of diamorphine, which is, I think, super, super strong. You're a doctor, you know. <laughs> it's strong stuff. So I don't think I really registered the, tr- the, the, the reality. I think I was in a kind of hazy state. Um, when I was told I was paralyzed, I didn't have a strong reaction to it. I remember just being like, yeah, I already know kind of feeling because on some level, my body knew, must have been talking to my subconscious mind when I was in a coma or something. The, the time when it really hit me hard was a month later when I got out of intensive care and I was flown down to a specialist spinal injuries hospital and I suddenly was surrounded by people in wheelchairs and the reality of what happened started to kick in. There were no more mind softening drugs and suddenly it was like, okay, you have to get up today and start to get into a wheelchair. And I didn't want anyone to see me in a wheelchair. I used to get into it, do what I needed to do, go to physio and, and, and so on. And then I was so embarrassed by my body and being sat in a wheelchair that I used to get back in my bed before visiting hours so that no one would see me and just be under my sheets to see visitors in the bed because <laughs> I just hated the whole, the whole body image and acceptance of all of that was, was really hard. And it was an interesting place to be in. When I was injured, it's a long time ago now, it's like 29 years ago, there were no private rooms. I was in an open ward full of men and women mixed together. So there was everything, there was quite a good humour around and there was everything from people who were in much more serious positions. And it was just quite a, a levelling environment where, where everyone kind of got what everyone was going through and it was a pretty special place to be. I had a really good time there, which sounds ironic. I had a really bad time in some ways, but I also had a really good time. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting because what was going on in my mind, on in my mind before that uh, rock climbing accident was a real, I remember distinctly the weekend before being on the west coast of Scotland on a famous island called the Isle of Skye. And I'd just come out of a plaster cast because I'd had a, a plaster on my ankle because I'd fractured a little bit of bone off my ankle. And I was, wasn't really able to walk and hike properly yet, but I was riding my mountain bike around and I was feeling so appreciative of the fact that I'd had a, a life that was kind of free of a lot of, of any real, I'd had a really loving childhood, nothing really bad had ever happened. And I remember really thinking to myself, wow, I've had a really good life. Nothing bad's ever happened. And maybe I had the thought, blimey, I wonder how long that can last. So that was quite weird. And then the night before my accident, I was out with friends cycling back from a night out and one of them had a loose mudguard on his bike. And I told him a story about a family friend who'd become paralyzed because his mudguard had gone into the wheel of his bike and thrown him over the handlebars. So basically it was just saying, tighten your mudguard up because, you know, they want this to happen. And my, our parting words, my parting words were, I can't imagine anything worse than being paralyzed. I'd rather be dead. And that was about 12 hours before I was... I've become really, really careful of what I think and what I say, because it does seem that our words and our thoughts have a huge amount of power. And on the flip side, I've realised that I can use that to create things in a better way as well. Just really being mindful of what thoughts I'm having and how to shift and change them so that hopefully can create positive realities instead of negative ones.
there are times in life when we face something that feels challenging. It might feel beyond our capabilities. Whether it's a challenge we chose or something that we need to face, Karen sees it as an opportunity to learn and change. It can push us out of our comfort zone, stretch our abilities, help us develop resilience physically, mentally, and emotionally, and it can give us a focus for our energy. She reframes these challenges positively into what she describes as WIBA. Wouldn't it be amazing? When I was first paralyzed, literally my whipper was, wouldn't it be amazing to even see the sky and go outside or to learn to pull my trousers up? There's all sorts of scales of them. And I think having, having various ones that, were, that are at different scales is quite, quite a nice way, quite keeps things interesting and fun. <laughs> Perhaps you may be wondering, as I was, how she does all these amazing things. Because, of course, she needs to modify her activities. She was gracious and patient with my questions and explained how she manages logistically to be active. Yeah, so so long ago that hand cycling wasn't a thing when I was paralyzed. There were wheelchair companies that would come to the hospital and bring bits of things that you could try. So from a lightweight wheelchair through to a racing wheelchair, which was a big thing back then, kind of athletics track stuff. Um, But they're really uncomfortable. You're kind of bent over. But I knew immediately that I wanted one. I ended up ordering a racing wheelchair before I even ordered a normal wheelchair because I just knew I needed a way to work my body and feel physical and maybe have something to to work towards, like doing a, a marathon or a half marathon or whatever. So that's the route that I went. There were activities that you could do every week when I was in the spinal unit, but they didn't appeal. It was things like shooting and archery, and they would they just felt too static for me. I wanted something more physical. So one of the physios also um, offered to take me sailing once a week. So I kind of fairly quickly got into sailing. And in the evenings, I'd just go and do laps of the hospital ground in my wheelchair and ended up getting this this young lass that I was uh, in the bed next to me who was 10 years old. And she ended up coming with me and we got into all sorts of trouble falling out and planting ourselves from car parks around the hospital grounds and having to get rescued. So maybe the, maybe the signs were there early on. But... I, a friend stuck a poster of the Himalayas on the ceiling above my bed. And I remember looking at the mountains and feeling really depressed, thinking I can't go there anymore. And then gradually I started to realize that, well, maybe I can. Maybe I just need to think about how that might happen. And I contacted, this is now after I got out of hospital, but I contacted a bike builder in Australia who I saw was making recumbent cycles and asked him if he might be able to make me a hand cycle tandem. Um, he'd never made one before, but he did, and it affectionately got known as the Green Beast because it's this, this, this huge tank that was dark green and about 30 kilos and three meters long. And I went to Australia to get it and took it on its inaugural ride across the Himalayas. So from yeah, Kazakhstan into Kyrgyzstan and China and Pakistan, which 20, I don't know how many years ago that was now, but sort of 20... Six or seven years ago was a pretty epic trip to take. It was uh, the old, yeah, it wasn't, there wasn't really a way through from Russia to China. Well, there was, but it was very tough to organize. Even during climbing, in order to be able to climb, she needs to modify her technique. I asked her, practically speaking, how she does it. Yeah, no, it's a good, it's a good question. So, I, I mean, I can't obviously use my legs to 
touch, hold the rock face like you'd normally climb. So I climbed pretty much. I, would, I don't need really call it climbing. I was basically doing pull-ups up the rope. But we had a we put a pulley in the system so that I wasn't pulling my whole body weight. So one person leads the climb. So my um, ex partner he he was climbing the rock face and he was leading the climb, so taking the rope up with him, and then everyone else follows. Um, so I would be following later, and essentially the rope would be in place. And because it's so overhanging, I, I barely needed to touch the rock, so my legs weren't scraping on the rock face. I was just hauling myself up the rope using this sort of pulley system. Now you may be thinking, it's amazing to be able to get to the top and feel so accomplished. But you know, getting to the top's not necessarily a high point because you've got to get down again. So actually there was going to be a, there was about a 15 hour piggyback to get back down. So getting to the top of the view was good, but then the anxiety starts again. Of, oh no, I've got to get out of here. <laughs> now that you know her story, given her fall, I asked Karen how it felt to climb again and how she got the courage to do it. Quite a few years ago now, I climbed El Capitan, the overhanging rock face in America. Uh, and I was full of fear and intimidation, like massively so. Uh, it seemed crazy. My mind was going crazy. It was probably triggering a lot of trauma that I'd had that I didn't even remember from falling off a rock face. And my body was sweating and shaking. And, you know, I, it was just a big reminder of how connected all of that is. And in the process of climbing it, I realized I couldn't be like that because it was dangerous. I couldn't be sweating and panicking and crying on this rock face when I needed to be handling the ropes and keeping things safe and going through the step-by-step process of moving up this rock wall because it took us like a week to climb it, sleeping up there, etc. So I had to work really hard on just changing every little thought that I had and looking out at the valley and going, wow, what an amazing place, how lucky I am to be here and replacing thoughts that were fearful, negative thoughts with other ones, managing the safety side of it. For Karen, a key part of her ability to carry on, to perform, and to conquer challenge after challenge is managing her thoughts, looking at what she can do, what she's grateful for, and what's holding her back. It's this constant and reflective awareness that is key to her being able to take action and experience so much out of life. I call it having withers. It's just a made-up word, but a wither stands for wouldn't it be amazing? (laughs) What about you? Do you have goals or things that you want to accomplish? Are you living out your dreams? No matter what your ideal XO life looks like, there are ways that you can move closer to making it a reality. A good starting place is to check out my free quiz at livingxo.com slash quiz. It helps you figure out if you're taking the right actions or if you're more likely to be caught up chasing goals that aren't aligned. We've all been there. Or maybe you're spinning your wheels and not getting to where you want. I've also had that too. More importantly, I follow up the quiz results with information on how you can move towards a more intentional approach. Thank you for joining me. Grab my resources and information on my website, livingxo.com. And let me know what your quiz results are. I love these discussions about how to make changes that will actually work for you. You can email me at hello at livingxo.com. 
or you can just reply to my emails if you're in my newsletter community. I send out lots of good information there. Until next time, take good care.